What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. It's been so long since we've put a new We're shit house at it. We're so bad at it. <laughs> Our four sponsors. <laughs> we're so bad at it, and we want to get better going forward. Yes. But here's a quick but. ad, and then we're going to be better at this. Okay. We're going to be better. Yeah. I promise we're going to be better. Yeah. Except for the buffet. Yeah. Fucking Einzelina. <laughs> Tell us about Einzelina. He's been, been in it from the start. If you want a tug, a ball, a slip leash. A slip lead. You know, really, no joke, his slip leads are the best slip leads. They are great slip leads. They are the best. They're handmade. They're hand-loved. Yeah. Do you know there's times where I look at material when we're actually buying things for our businesses and some of them are just shit house. Yeah. Like they're so mass-produced. Jason takes his time. He puts them together properly. Like if you're listening, chances are you're in the industry, you're in the business, you need a lot of leashes, you sell them to clients, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Decade staff. The best thing about the Einzawina leashes is that he custom makes them. He so does. you can get whatever you want, whatever yeah, color, whatever length. Too. Like he's approachable. Want a handle on it, no handle on it, whatever. I'm, yeah. I had him make that handler pack for me because I got sick of people turning out with shit leashes. Now everyone I train with uses all these perfect leashes. Yeah. So get some stuff from the Einzawina. He's been supporting us from the start. We love him. We hate him sometimes. Make sure you're telling me he's a bullfed. Yeah. Yep. Canonceuticals. Going great. Thank you, people in the United States who prioritize your dog's health through yeah. supplementation. I am a walking testimonial for Canonceuticals because if you go back, you hear 18 months ago, I was like, yeah, pretty sure my dog's going to die any minute because he was so unwell mm. and got him on the subs and he's actually in the best shape he's been in in ages. Narelle's always maintained if it never worked, she'd burn it to the ground. She's just got too much pride and too much neuroticism not to <laughs> not to put something to market that she didn't believe in. And the wonderful thing about it is it's working well. The testimonials have been amazing mm. and very heartfelt. Like she gets people who are so agitated and depressed and distressed about the health and the well-being of their dogs. Narelle makes no outrageous claims. Mm -hmm. She's never said that it's the one thing that does everything for dogs. She just says it's going to help you. Mm -hmm. By law, she's not allowed to make those claims, but she wouldn't want to anyway. But what she does tell people is it's definitely going to do better for your dog. Yeah. We watch our own dogs. Opie, who's got more things than you could poke a stick wrong with him, he probably wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't through Narelle's treatment, through good supplementation, changing diets, all those sort of things. I could talk about it forever. I don't want to make this sound like a buy sales pitch. I'm a fan of it because I know if it works. If it didn't, I wouldn't. Well, it's an ad. Well, it's an ad. <laughs> but, but I wouldn't disgrace myself by talking about something that didn't work. I'd be the same with her. I'd just say burn it to the ground. I don't want to know about it. Yeah. Let's work through our sponsor list. Yes. These are the people that sponsor us and we love them for it and we're plugging their business. Yes. First on our list here is Daniel, who we don't know how to say is Tropiano. Tropino. I thought we Trop just called him Troppy Daniel. Troppy right? Daniel. Troppy Daniel. Dog Club, South Australia. Yep. Awesome training facility. Representing South Australia, it's great to see that a yep. state that's usually sleepy and not Australia's considered. Just hoping some, hosting some cool events there. Yeah. Yeah, good on you, Daniel. Well done. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound. Yeah. It's fucking cool. It's a box for your dog that goes on your motorbike. The only one that I know of. Yeah. It's the coolest product not ever. Not in Australia yet, so hopefully one day we, we can talk to Horny George about getting some Rowdy Hound dog boxes in here. He does training videos. He shows people how to train their dogs to get into the Rowdy Hound. He's a dog trainer himself. He's in the biz. Yep. Barbara DeGroote. 
from the heart dog training. That's her. Our sugar mama. Yeah. She's so good. I love she her. She asks nothing in return. <laughs> she says pluses with love and money. She's very encouraging all the time. Thank you, Barbara. She's a roddy lady. So what would you expect? Yep. Tailored canines. We don't know much about Taylor Canines. They just turned up one day and said, hey, we just want to throw some money at you. But they offer a complete range of canine training services. Yeah, Taylor Canines. Where are they? They're in Canada, right? They're in Canada. Yeah. So, so we've got a couple of Canadians. We've got a couple of Americans. We've got a couple of Aussies. Good eclectic mix. We haven't got anyone from Europe. Fucking hell. <laughs> up your game. But we don't, can't take any more sponsors. So uh, we're, <laughs> we're, about, we're bad about, enough at what about Birdie? What Birdie Oh, yeah. So we are plugging as well. Birdie was on for us last week and yeah. then told us about her webinar thing that she's got going on for yep. people in the Magic of Dogs. Magic of Dogs. So head to birdieoshitty.com, I think is her website, yep. and you can check that out there. All the sponsors, trust us, we're getting better at the ads. I promise you, yep. next, we're, we're going to be in touch with you and we're going to get better at it. We're going to take it more seriously. We're just shit at it because we've got other stuff and this is just an extra that we like to do. We thank you very much but for But we your both support. spanked each other. Pat spanked yeah. me and then I spanked him. And Yeah, then, we need to we, get better at this. Yeah, we do. We were going to leave it another week of the existing ad and thought, no, we can't possibly. We're actually no, together no, for it, the first time. Yep. That's what's been holding us back is that we- We haven't been together. Yeah. I yeah. Know, missed you. I missed you too. All right, that's it. Here's the show. Bye. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm plodding along. We're doing an early episode because I've got to go to Canberra. We're going to be apart from two weeks. There's lots going on. So we've got to get stuck into a few content creation just in the meantime. Yeah. And hey, I've got something to talk about. Let's get straight into it. Yeah, let's do that. So friend of the show, Larry Crone, put up a reel recently, and it was one where he's sitting in his car and he just was talking about the difference between pet dog trainers and sport dog trainers. And he mentioned that his pet dog clients, to paraphrase everything he said, it was basically adverse weather conditions and they're pulling the pin. And then in the sport dog people that he trains with, the most horrific weather conditions and the only reason they're reaching out to him is to tell him that they've brought him a raincoat, right? <laughs> and and when I saw it, I sort of agreed with it. Like, I like Larry a lot. I think that most of what he says, I agree with. Certainly the sentiment of everything he says, I agree with, if not the finite details. I liked it and I thought, oh yeah, that's my experience also, right? But then I got kind of thinking about it really, maybe a little too deeply. <laughs> and I started trying to sort of figure out, you know, sort of break that down a little bit and think about like, is that the case? And if so... Why is that the case? And that's what I wanted to sort of tear apart a little bit in this episode. Hmm. It's unlike Larry to be talking about a subject in his car. That's <laughs> <laughs> the car video. Yeah. All right. Well, um, uh, let head it off and tell us your tell us where you got to with your Pat Stewart deep thinking episodes. As I said, like when I saw the video, I was like, yep, I totally agree. I'm on board with that because that has been my experience as well, is that we've all done it. We've all been places doing dog stuff where things have just gotten ridiculous. You know, like even the last time we had the PSA training day, it was hammering rain for parts of it. And we're all just standing out there still working dogs and, and until it gets dangerous. And usually the concern of danger when you are doing working dog stuff is usually to the dogs. Most of the time when someone's like, oh, okay, like we better can this because of weather conditions. It's almost always because we're worried about the dogs, not so much ourselves. Most of the time people are like, well, I can put up with this. And I think that that 
maybe falls back to the old consent conversation of like, I choose these risks. I want the outcome that comes of this. I know the risks. I can calculate them. Mm-hmm. I give my consent to that risk where the dog can't do that. The dog doesn't understand how slippery it could be or the dangers of heat. And especially what gets events canceled here in Australia or postponed and stuff like that is usually heat. It's usually extreme heat. So we've had a couple of really hot days over the summer or chunks of days usually, you know, for people who don't understand Australian weather, it's like everywhere else. You get these days in the summer that crack 40 degrees Celsius. So what's that in Fahrenheit? It's like 110 or something 115 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you get these sort of insanely hot days and they tend to cluster. You'll have you know, three or four of those in a row, maybe the middle one will will crack 42 degrees and then the rest, the few either side will be like 38. And then the average sort of hot weather day in Australia is about 30 degrees. That's fine. People train through that kind of stuff. But for me, once you start cracking 38 degrees, which, you know, like body temperature, so whatever that is in Fahrenheit, you know, but over a hundred, that's where I start to think like, uh, okay, this is probably headed in a dangerous direction. And, and over the summer, we've canceled club training what do we do? Maybe cancel two or three different days that I just decided were too hot. And the reason I usually would call something off because of the weather is because we've got a lot of really high drive dogs and we've got a couple of dogs that really don't have any self-preservation and they'll work until they're dead. Yep. And so you've really got to protect those dogs. And look, I've been around, I've, I've seen it in the military settings. I've seen it in police settings. I've seen it in sporting settings and I've seen it in pet dog settings as well, where you get dogs that just don't have an out from what they're doing. You see it with dogs that in the bite work, you know, maybe it's that they've been trained for it. Maybe that it's just genetics, but they just will not quit no matter how unwell they feel. And that's like that level of gameness. They're usually the best dogs. And I think that when you have those kind of dogs, you do have to protect them from themselves. You know, I think that we see that a lot, you know, in working Kelpies on farms often will run themselves into the ground. They'll, they won't drink because they're working. They're working in extreme heat and they'll just run themselves dead. It happens. It's not an uncommon thing to do because they're not like a person who has that level of inward sort of awareness of themselves where they can think, oh, I'm in bad shape. I need to stop. We do in the working dog community, in the sport dog community, we do very often push through adverse conditions and continue training. And what stops us usually is a concern over the health and welfare of the dog. Mm. Um, and and certainly, like it has been my experience that uh, I've trained with plenty of pet dog owners that are pretty easy to to derail from getting to the session. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much of a life complication or or it's traffic or as Larry points out in his video, it's it's the weather that is pretty easy to derail them from coming to sessions. And that's why when I when I saw his clip, I was like, oh yeah, I agree with this. Like that has been my experience as well. But then I sort of decided to think on it really deeply. I don't know why, but I started sort of thinking that It reminded me of something I learned many years ago that I'll get to in a moment, but I think that what we actually see is this level of commitment to turning up to training and being involved in training that we usually attribute to sporting dog people. Now, and when I say sporting dog people, I think that most of the time people think of bite work type people, right? Like, because me and you both are involved in that. That's when we think of sporting dog people. But I don't mean sporting dog people and specifically bite work. Sporting dog people covers people doing canicross, agility, rallyo, anything that they're turning up to do an activity with their dog. And I think that the spectrum of that is pretty broad. You get people who are training 
incessantly for an IGP title or yeah, you know, whatever it is that they want to get. And they're training, you know, really rigidly for that. And then you get people who go to their nose works class on the weekend that they really have no intention of actually competing in. They just enjoy it because they've got a mildly reactive dog or something like that. And it really helps with the dog and they just enjoy the process of turning up to the classes. It's something to do with their dog. I think that that's the spectrum of sporting dog people, right? Like, so we're a pretty broad spectrum. And then when you talk pet dog clients or pet dog owners, there's a huge spectrum there as well. There's people who just have a dog it lives in the backyard and is considered a, an accessory to the family. It's a thing that they have because the nuclear family has a dog in the yard and it's a pain in the ass to deal with that dog and it gets walked on the weekends maybe once and it's in the yard most of the time. You know, there's that level of pet dog ownership mm. all the way up to fur baby mummy who is destroying their own life and sacrificing everything to make sure that their dog has what they perceive as being the best stuff for their dog and and making sure that their dog's life is 100% fulfilled from their perception and and doing everything that the internet tells them to do for their dog, right? So I think when we talk about sport dog people and we talk about pet dog people, there's this really broad spectrum of both. But then also, I think that in the middle, there's a really big overlap of those two things as well. Take, for example, a lot of the people in our club probably fit within that as well, that they're not professional dog trainers. They're they're professional people in one way or another. They work in a bank or they work in marketing or whatever, but they have a really high powered sport dog that they do sports with. But it is at the end of the day, their pet dog. If, if something happened to the dog's workability and the dog could no longer work or compete in the sport that they're doing, they're not rehoming that dog. The priority to, to them is the dog and the sport is the fulfillment for the dog. It's what keeps the dog happy. It's the thing that they're doing. But the dog is, at the end of the day, very much their pet dog. It's their dog that they live with. It's the dog that they really just enjoy the company of. And the process of trying to achieve some outcome with it, i.e. sport titles, is just a journey that they're on with the dog. It's not the dog's sole purpose in life. Whereas, of course, there are people who within working spaces where if the dog can't do the work, then it has to be rehomed or it has to be replaced in some sort of capacity because the dog has a real job and that might be competing in a sport, but it might also be working in security or it might be doing conservation detection or you know many and various things that we think of when we think about the sort of working and sport dog community. So I want to frame everything I sort of explain around there being really the camps that we sort of are attributing here as being the pet dog camp and the the sport dog camp are really broad with a really huge range of people within them. But then within the center of both of those camps, I think there's a massive overlap. I think that one is the other for quite a big chunk of in the middle there. At the moment, I would even with my own dogs, I put myself into that category. You know, Valerie is just my pet. I don't do any sports or anything with her. I don't really do a lot of behavior mod type stuff anymore that I used to use her for. Like that was when, when I called her a working dog, that really was her work. She would accompany me. She was not just a demo dog, but she would assist in the training of other dogs. And I still do a little bit of that every now and again, but it's not a, it's not a cornerstone of my business like it once was. And so she's a pet. She just chills out. She does whatever. And if, if she can still do that kind of work for me, but if for whatever reason she couldn't, and some of the things she used to do, she doesn't do anymore. Like she used to love raising puppies. She used to be really good with puppies and now she's not. She's kind of grown out of that. She doesn't enjoy the company of puppies anymore. So she's 
doesn't fulfill that working task that I used to have a need for her, but she's my pet and nothing has changed with her life, right? Like she will always have a place in my home and a place in my heart. But then I've got a Malinois who is in a similar position. Like his health comes and goes. I've competed with him. I've shown with him in four different sports. We have been successful in different things. But at the end of the day, if and when things happen to him, because they do, he's often injured. He just is on the couch and he's he's my happy dog that is on the couch and I pay no mind to the fact that he can't compete other than that upsetting me. It never crosses my mind that I need to replace him immediately. So that's the start. There's this huge, broad spectrum, two camps. They're huge. There's a huge overlap in the middle. And I consider myself presently with my two dogs in that overlapping space. Anything to add to that, sir? Quite a bit. (laughs) Go ahead. Earlier on when you were describing the dangers of weather conditions with some sports dogs and the concern about having to pull it, I concur entirely with what you were saying. I mean, the days that we've been here alone, you know, like the ground is like scorched earth. What point is there in putting your own health and your dog's health at risk when the conditions are so adverse? I mean, we've got the luxury of having a facility here where we've got air conditioning inside it, but there's certain exercises that you've got to do outside. You've also got to worry about your dogs sitting inside the car while you're inside with adverse weather and so forth. So yeah, you have to think about those type of things. It needs to be in the forefront of your mind. While you were saying that, I was also laughing to myself because you were describing the life that every French bulldog owner goes through every day of their life. (laughs) They're trying to keep them alive. Just trying to keep them alive in any type of weather because they're certainly dogs that will annihilate themselves without any pre-thought about the idea of it. They have no self-preservation or conservation themselves. Effectively, all you're doing is maintaining a regular procedure of making sure that they're not overexerting themselves, especially in inclement weather and so forth. So yeah. they're crazy little dogs. Then getting on to the topic of sport dog training itself, pet dog people, a lot of them don't have a specific goal like a trial that they have to be ready for. So a lot of sport dog people who have been bitten by the commitment bug there is the looming presence of a trial that they need to be prepared for. So that in itself, once they become regular and and they've got into the motivation and then they start to bleed into the discipline side of it where they are turning up regularly because they're now into a, a discipline structure of turning up every week. I mean, it gives them their own little dopamine hit as well. They're seeing the dog improve. They're getting praise from their training director and their club members, and they can see that what they're doing is taking shape, and it's now starting to move into a direction of, I can compete and I can do these sort of things. So it's the joy of the trial, and it's also the stress of the trial, and it's creating this, I would say it's probably a little bit of conflict. There is conflict within all of us when we're heading towards trial, because A, you want to do it. But B, it's also very stressful to think, I don't want to do this badly. Yeah, for sure. So with that looming over the top of your head, there is very much a push-pull conflict that's going on inside most sport dog people. Anybody who's getting ready for trial, that is resonating around in your brain. Where a pet dog person, they can cancel at the minute's notice. It's like having a, a chiropractor appointment. Recently, I had a chiropractor appointment and my back sort of sorted itself out. So I rang my chiropractor and said, mate, I don't need that appointment next week. I'm going to have to can it. Mm -hmm. Whereas you don't have that luxury. You've got like a residual back injury that you've had since your military days and you need to have regular upkeep 
in doing that. Otherwise, you don't walk properly and you can't get up and go to work. So for you, that's Wait. not an option. You have set me up perfectly. So okay, this is well. So what I want to explain is that I think in all aspects and in all areas of your life, some people are pulling the cart because they're out in front and they're like, "Fuck yeah, I'm dragging this cart with me. I'm super excited about it going." But other people are pushing that cart. Mm. You know, like some people, it's really like obligatory. Like, ah, oh, fuck, I have to do this, or else you know there'll be consequences that I don't like. And we sometimes attribute that to people who are motivated and people who are unmotivated. But here's the thing. In the dog space, when it's dog training, I'm motivated. I go to all the things that I can get to. I consider myself an eternal student. I'm constantly buying people's online courses. I attend every seminar that I can reasonably get to. I'm super motivated to do this. You're I beyond want to motivated. my knowledge. You're disciplined. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's definitely one way to put it, right? Yeah. But, but You've transcended motivation. Like my, my motivation is intrinsic and it's that I truly enjoy doing it. I like to do it. And so in the dog space, like me and many others, I think I'm pulling the cart, right? If the cart that is work has to be done, I'm pulling it along because I'm out in front. I want to be ahead of it. But And we look and we say like some people are motivated people and some people are not so motivated. But I really think that that's contextual, right? And and you've got to have a look into like what is it that you're doing and why is that motivation there? As you said, health and fitness type stuff, right? So I see my physio at least once a week. I see an exercise physiologist as well. I see a bunch of different people. I'm on a bunch of different meds just to keep my body going because it's so far. Mm. I have trained my whole life. I'm 40 years old. I did all the sports when I was a kid. I was from a really sporty family. We did all the things, at least two different sports per season. I was in at a time. We were that family that, you know, I'd be late to the soccer game because I was coming directly from the football game or the other way around. Or I'd be late to the athletics carnival because I was at a baseball game. You know, all that sort of shit. Like I was doing it all when I was a kid. So I'm a physical person. But man, I fucking hate working out. I do it, but I have no love for it. <laughs> and my physio, my exercise physiologist, they're always like, you clearly have not done the exercises that I've told you to do. <laughs> In the same way that with pet dog clients, I tell people, hey, this is the issue that we have. Or, or I shouldn't say pet dog clients, with less motivated clients, right? And so when someone comes to me with a dog and I can diagnose the issue and I say, hey, this is the steps. And usually it's like a motivation-based thing, or it might be that we're counter-conditioning something, whatever it is you usually end up giving these people homework. If you're not doing the board and train to give people homework in the same way, my physio says to me, Hey, man, I can manually release this. Like I can stretch this out for you. I can do all this intermediate work for you, but all I'm doing is treating a symptom. You are the one that has to address the cause. And here are the exercises that you do. And then I go back to him a week later and he says, how's your knee feeling today? And I go, Oh yeah, like it's fine. And he goes, have you been doing the exercises? And I lie and I go, yes. And then he puts his hand on my knee and goes, no, you haven't. Like I can see immediately that you haven't, right? Because the results aren't there. And if you had been doing the things that I told you to do, things would have changed. And every time that happens, I kind of smirk and I think, oh, I'm such a shit client to this guy. Now he's a good friend and he knows like I'm doing other stuff, but I'm busy. And the like a lot of the times your self-care things kind of fall away when I've got two kids. I've got a business that I'm running. I'm trying to survive in this fucked up world. Like, so sometimes my own self-care, when I run out of time, the things that I need, I know I need to do that are purely for me to stop me being in pain, they're the things that can get cut away really quickly because nobody else has to suffer from them, right? 
except when I go to the physio and he goes, you haven't done the fucking homework. I can tell. One of the issues I have constantly is my VMO, which is like a quad muscle. My knee is so fucked on my right side that it just doesn't work properly, right? Like my VMO doesn't grow unless I specifically target it. And I have to do these very specific exercises just to try and keep my legs in balance. And sometimes people point it out. People like who will see me in a pair of shorts and go, Pat, like your right quad is half the size of your left. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, right? It's because I don't do the fucking exercises that I'm meant to do in order to grow it. So the reason I point all this out is because in one domain, I am super motivated. I go to everything. I'm at the things. I'm there first. I'm studying it. I'm taking notes. I'm rereading those notes. I'm in my downtime. I'm in traffic in the car thinking about this stuff. I close my eyes. I'm picturing it. But then in other areas of my life, I'm like, I will do the fucking minimum because I don't enjoy doing this. And I know that I need to. I know that I have to. And one of the things that's amazing to me is I've been working out my whole life, right? And whether it was just sort of actually doing the things that make and keep you fit were like I did when I was a kid or as an adult, when you actually start thinking, okay, well, I have to go to the gym and just do these things in order to maintain strength and fitness. I want to be able to jump over fences, like jumping over fences keeps you fit when you're a kid and climbing trees and running around and just doing random shit. But as an adult, then you go, okay, well, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to actually work on these, these things to make the muscle. I've been doing that for 20 years. Mm. Do you think I could write a training program? Not a fucking chance in my life. If I don't know what I'm doing when I'm walking in the gym, I just stand there and stare at weights and I maybe will pick up some dumbbells and do some bicep curls, right? Like that's about as far as it gets. I might do like some bicep curls, maybe a couple of squats. And then I'm like, yeah, good workout. Like I have no idea. And to design a training program for myself from scratch, there's no way I could do that. I haven't got a fucking clue and I have no interest in it, but I've been doing other people's programs for 20 years, uh, 20 years. I've been walking into gyms and following a program or training with someone else who says, okay, like our goals are this, this is what we're going to work towards. And the moment I've finished that workout or finished that program that they've written for me, I data dump the whole thing. It's fucking gone out of my brain. And I could not, like, if you asked me to write you a training program, I would not have a clue. And that's why whenever I've been at my fittest, it's always because I end up falling back to using kettlebells. And the reason I like using kettlebells is like there's to do them sort of old school Russian style. There's only six things you can do. And the program <laughs> that I've been most successful at only does two of them, kettlebell swings and Turkish get-ups. And when I've been at my like fittest and healthiest and strongest, it's because I'm doing a program that is so simple. It literally is just 100 kettlebell swings and 10 Turkish get-ups every day for the rest of your life. And that's the only time that I've ever been like when I walk into the gym and I don't know what to do, if there's no kettlebell there, I'm like, oh, well, I don't know what to do because my default setting is just do that. I have a question for you then. What would yeah. happen if you cared about it? What would change? Yeah, well, if I, if I were into it, see, this is the thing, because I'm just not, like I don't enjoy being in the gym. Let, let's it's pretend you are. A, let's pretend you are. Okay. Yeah, well, then I imagine I would understand much better the cause and the effects I think that's what I'd never bothered to really understand is the cause and the effect. What I wanted to say about that is knowing you for as long as I have, if you cared about it, you would have dissect every quadrant of that. And like, oh, you would be a master in nutrition by now. You would know, you know, like every single exercise dating back to Spartan origins and so forth. Like, I just know who you are, Pat Stewart. I know what lengths that you would go to in your obsessive compulsive 
um, manifest. So all you've just said to me is, I don't really care about this. It doesn't matter to me. Because when you care and it does matter, the transformation in what you will do to make that happen is profoundly different to when you don't care about something. Exactly. And my physical training is obligatory that I do it because I know I need to. Mm. That's the reason I do it is not because I enjoy it. I don't take any like big love out of it. Of course, I feel better after I've trained all of those things, right? But I do it and it's been a constant part of my life because I have to. And of course, what happens is I get some fresh and exciting new injury. What stopped me when I was obsessively, I mean, I know we talked about this on the show when I was obsessively doing it because it was in COVID when I was obsessively doing that Simple and Sinister, and I Simple and Sinister for people who didn't listen back then, is a, a kettlebell workout. It's a timed workout. It's much like a CrossFit thing, although it's from a brand that is anti-CrossFit, but it's a timed workout with a kettlebell. And when you do it with a 32-kilo kettlebell, it's called Simple. And then when you do it with a 48-kilo with a kettlebell, it's called Sinister. And if you film it and you qualify as having achieved it within the timeframes. You send it to this company, the video, and they you get the title of a person that did it and you go on their website and there's a list of people who have been able to do it. Mm. And I did simple, I dedicated myself to it and did pretty well. And then for some reason decided I wanted to do Sinister and nearly fucking killed myself doing it. Like I am not a person, like I don't know why <laughs> I thought that I would be a person that could do that, especially since I watched a bunch of the videos of the people who have achieved it and they're all monsters. I am not that. And I badly, badly hurt myself trying to get there by rushing through the kettlebells too quickly and it sort of fell off the wagon. But that's just one of the many examples of the times where I get into it and it doesn't take much to derail me. And then I'm like, I, I don't work out for six weeks, three months or something like that. And then my back's fucked and I can't walk properly and I'm in constant pain. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm like, I've hit the bottom. I need to start building myself back up because I I don't have the way that the fracture in my spine works means that like I have to have a really strong core. I don't have a skeletal core, so I have to have a really strong core. And so again, enough with my whinging about having to do workouts, <laughs> but I fully identify that there are people who come into the dog space that feel the same way about their dog training that I feel about going to the gym. They know it's something that they have to do. Their dog needs it. They, in order to live the best life that's imaginable for them with their dog, they know there's a level of training that needs to be done here, but they are not excited about doing it. They're not that keen to do it because they're pushing the cart. They're not pulling it. They're not like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm ahead and and this is coming along with me. They're like, okay, this is an obstacle that's in front of me and I have to keep pushing it in order to keep moving. And here's the kicker. I think that there's people like that across the full spectrum of dog training. I think that we get people who are pushing the cart as pet dog owners, and we get people who are pulling the cart as pet dog owners. We get people who are super into it and fucking love doing it and never intend to show their dog in any kind of sport or arena or be measured, have their training measured against the quality of somebody else's or their dog measured against the quality of someone else's. They're just super into it and they're trying to do their best for their dog. And they they get up in the morning and they think about it and they're designing training programs. They're committed to the training of their dog and they're the people who are going to be out rain, hail or shine doing what needs to be done. But those people exist across the full spectrum. They're in the sports, they're in the pet dog owners. And the opposite, people who are obligatorily training their dog or are pushing the cart also exist across the full spectrum. Mm -hmm. We get people who have gotten a dog that's way too much for them. 
we've all seen that. We see people who are doing their sport obligatorily because they're like, well, my dog is a mess without it and it impacts my life. But if my dog were not like this, then I wouldn't be striving to be doing this sport. I'm only doing it because it relieves the stress of my life. And those kind of people are the flaky ones in your club. They're the people that like are there sometimes, right? They're the people who turn up every now and again. They're the people who it's easy to derail. They're the people who never really want to go into trial or competition or anything like that. It's just that they maybe enjoy a bit of the community of the club. Maybe they're just turning off the stress of their high drive dog that impacts their life. There's many and various reasons why people exist like that, but they're in the working space as well. And those same people exist in the pet dog space very much as well, where they're just like, hey, my dog's being a pain in the ass. I need this problem fixed. And so I think across the full spectrum, whether it's pet dog owners to sport dog people, whether it's that middle section where the the Venn diagram overlaps and where we are one and the same, the sport dog and the pet dog people are the same. I believe across that, you get a full spectrum of motivation. Some people that fucking love doing it and you'll never be able to stop them. And they're pushing their dog. They're trying to get the most for and from their dog. They're the ones that are into it because it's important to them. It's their life. It's a huge part of why they get up every day. And then there's other people, again, across that full spectrum who are just trying trying to turn off the pressure that exists in their life because of their dog. And they're just trying to think, well, okay, this is what's required in order to improve my life. And when they see that level of improvement in their life, then the pressure is off and they stop coming to training. And like I said, sometimes I think that when we're talking about the personalities in dogs and or the the way that we relate to each other and all that kind of stuff, I think sometimes taking examples from outside of dogs allows us to not upset anyone and to not uh, marginalize anyone in our community. Because sometimes, you know, especially when we're, when me and you and many other people who do this kind of thing, when we say people do this, immediately some listener goes, oh, these buckets are talking about me. They're watching me, right? And so- <laughs> We're not. So sometimes I think it's easier to relate it to something else. And certainly I think giving personal examples means that I like to pick on myself. I don't like to pick on other people. I am that. I have the full spectrum of motivation. Sometimes I'm fucking all in, in certain aspects of my life. And in dogs, I'm one of the motivated people. But in other aspects of my life, I am just trying to turn off the pressure. And when the pressure is turned off, I become complacent and I don't want to be involved anymore. And then it's not until that pressure builds up again that I'm like, oh, fuck, okay, like I, I want this to stop and I know how to stop it. And that's by recommitting to this other aspect of my life. Mm. And I think we see that across the full spectrum of dogs. What do you think? There's a great deal of personal connection with what you talked about there. I've gone through so many variations in myself that I can think of where times I've been absolutely obsessive and there are other times where I've been very dismissive about it as well, like getting involved in sports and getting involved, even getting involved in pet training. I recall times where I was working almost seven days a week and almost 12 hours a day. To me, it wasn't getting through it. To me, it was like, this has become my life now. Like this has become a desire, a want, a need, something that is fulfilling everything else that's lacking right now. I remember the priest that married me and my first wife together, he did a counselling session with both of us at one stage because he was concerned about my commitment to the dogs. And his name was Keith. He was a family friend, lovely guy. I've known him certainly all of my life and for most of his. He asked me a bunch of questions about my commitment to my marriage, my commitment to everything else around it. And I couldn't see a way through it that didn't involve my obsessiveness with dogs. 
privately, he pulled me aside one day and he said, mate, everything that you've described to me eventually is going to come down on top of you. He said, this is like a house of cards. It sounds great now. And he said, I can see that you're enjoying yourself. He said, I've seen passion in your eyes that I've never seen in you before. Like he said, you've always been a pretty sprightly sort of kid. And he said, but I can see like you've got this desire just burning away. And he said, but some people don't understand that that is very consuming. Like that fire needs substance. It needs something to keep it burning all the time. And he said, and you've got to ask yourself, what is it burning away? I didn't think much about it at the time. It didn't concern me what he was saying. He was just an obstacle in my way at the point in time. Later on in my life, I kind of thought there are other things that do matter. And again, this comes back to the conversation when we had Birdie on a while ago relating to a question that Melanie Benware asked me is some people feel like if this doesn't work out for them and they've thrown all their assets and everything into it, what's left for me at the end? Who am I and what do I become because of it? And I've seen a lot of people in both camps, in people who have been like a pet mummy or daddy, who've been very involved in the community of their dog. And I've seen the same thing happen with sport people because I was one of those. You said before your comment was, you know, like we're using ourselves as examples and we're picking on ourselves, kind of like what Eminem does in the end of his movie, where he basically lays his life out and says, I was that fuck up person. I did all those sort of things. So I relate heavily to the way that things derailed around my life because of my obsessiveness around dogs at one stage. And I don't deliberately do that now. It's not like I've just gone, oh, well, I'm learning all the lessons now. I'm not going to do it. I still go through obsessions. You've seen me in my obsessive phases about things that I want to do. At one stage, I was making kombucha. And I was so obsessive about it. Remember the kombucha <laughs> I literally had a factory of <laughs> mason jars around the house with scobies everywhere. And I was obsessed with it. I completely obsessed with it. I bought everything. I was transplanting scobies from, from people. I was buying them online. You know, I had every type of scoby and then I got into everything you could think of around that as well. It was just insane. It was just crazy. I had shit in cupboards. I had shit in my bedroom. I had shit in, and Narelle said, this place smells like a brewery now. And uh, <laughs> it was just crazy. But then I got to a point where I thought, I kind of mastered this. I've got as good as I can get in this. And that's not true because, I mean, it, getting as good as you could, I mean, I could have made a business out of it and done what everybody else did. But I kind of thought I got to where I felt like I needed to get to. And then I sort of just dropped it. And I thought, why am I doing all this? I'm fucking exhausted. You know, like I'm yeah. doing my job during the day and then I'm coming in at night and I'm like trying to manifest my SCOBY farm and doing all this sort of stuff. And I see the same sort of thing, especially sport dog people. Some sport dog people just completely annihilate themselves with too much pressure sometimes. It doesn't mean that the pet dog people don't do the same, that you can ebb and flow between each camp. So that reminded me of a conversation that my buddy and I were having the other day. We were traveling somewhere and we were talking about kids involved in sport. And the reason I'm bringing that up is you reminded me of it before when you were saying you were late to one game because you were leaving another game. There are a lot of kids and parents these days that I don't understand and I don't know how they're maintaining the schedules that they're actually doing. Like as soon as that kid is leaving school, they're in music lessons then they're doing some kind of sport or then they're doing some sort of extracurriculum language lesson or something like that. Like it's extending into the night and these are like young kids doing it. And I said to my buddy, because I think one of his kids is doing something similar. And I said, do you enjoy it? And he said, oh, the way I think I need to answer this question is 
some parents didn't have this opportunity when they were kids. So they want to make sure that they're presenting their kids with all the opportunities they didn't have. And I said, but do you enjoy it? Or do you think some of the other parents enjoy it? Do you think the kids enjoy it? And he said, well, I guess some do and some don't. But I feel that some parents are doing it because they're feeling the pressure that if I don't do it with my kids, I'm going to be looked on poorly by the other parents who are saying this is the normal life of all the extra curriculum activities that kids have to do. So some really do enjoy it. Some are really sporty. I've seen families like you were representing before with your own life where they're all about the sports and that's what brings their family together. Mum's involved in it. Dad's involved in it. They've made community and friendships because of it. And I see that in the sporting dog world as well. I see people that are really into it for all the right reasons. You know, their dog is not just a commodity for them to get a trophy or a title. Their dog is actually their life. They love the dog. Their partner sometimes comes along to training it gives them fulfillment. It gives them an out. Their work life is generally boring. They're not satisfied there, but their dog community very much is. It's very important to them. They feel like this is somewhere where I can excel. This is somewhere where I feel important. This is somewhere where I feel like I've got a sense of community, where I've got control of something, whereas everything else is not. But then I think of someone like Jane, for argument's sake, your wife, and her life with her two boys, your two boys, your family. And you've described on multiple occasions how Axel is so much more of a handful than what Rip is. Mm. Could Jane commit to a life with dogs? Would that be on her schedule? Would she be able to do that with how Axel is? Yeah, no way. There's no way that uh, she would have the free time. It's hard enough for me to be able to get the free time to have both of us just be impossible. Well, I remember school holidays only recently finished because of Christmas. And I remember asking you the question and I said, mate, how are you? And you said, oh, things are starting to return to normal. School holidays are over. The kids are going back to daycare and school. And I could just see how frustrated and fatigued you were. And it's not that you don't love your boys or are proud of your boys or doing what you're doing to give your boys a better future and your wife and so forth. It's not that that doesn't exist. I know you love your children. I know you're a good dad. But I could also see that with the pressures that you have of trying to get your course developed, pay all the bills that are coming in, all the things that need to happen on top of two boys that have demands and a wife and dogs and everything like that. And there's probably people listening to this going, oh, motherfucker, welcome to my life. You know, and, that, <laughs> and that's what I'm pointing out. You know, like when we're talking about the reason why people can't commit to things sometimes, it's not just because they're lazy people with no desire. It's that they have to look at what can I take from column A to be able to put into column B and not have column C completely wither away or have column A grow so out of control that it falls over and collapses everything on top of every other column and destroys my whole life around me. And I know a little bit about that because there's sometimes where you just get to the end of it and think, at the end of the day, this is a sport and it's my dog and it doesn't matter to me the same way it does. Or a better example I would say of that is if you've got a pet dog person who's been charged two to $500 an hour to do a private lesson with a trainer versus a sport dog person who's paying $10 in club fees, that's a different commodity as well. But then I could also look at what about time, which is the most precious commodity that all of us have in any way, shape or form above everything else. And I really came to a recollection of that the other day about how important my time is because my time 
is not as infinite as I once believed it to be. Once you start getting at certain age brackets, you start realizing my time is finite now. It's starting to run out. Things are changing. My body is changing. My mind is changing. Time is running out. Like it's a reality for all of us. As much as we'd like to have this concept of an infinite lifestyle, immortality and everything, we're mortal. We have a timeline on how long we're actually here. So there are a lot of people on this earth that rob you of your most precious commodity. They take your time. And sometimes you give your time to people because you can see value in doing that and other people rob you of your time. So you've got to dedicate which column that time slot goes into because I'm telling you now, like if you haven't worked it out, if you're still thinking that little tin cups or ribbons on your wall are the most important thing to you or money in your bank or something like that, you're missing the point. It's time. Time is is more valuable than any of these things combined. And you might think, well, I like my time in my dog sports because it's making me feel good. No scorn from me, nothing at all, because I'm a dog person. I've dedicated my lives to dogs, you know, so much so that still in my 50s, I'm still getting up to solve dog problems because, I mean, I could finish this job. I could say, oh, that's enough. I'm done with this. But I like this career. You know, there's something about it that I like. The money's rewarding, sure. I live on five-acre property. I live in Dural. There's so many things that fit well into my lifestyle that Narelle and I have looked at this and thought, it works for us. There are rewards. There, are, Of course, there are pros and cons. You're about to do a seminar on that, pros and cons. Mm-hmm. There are pros and cons to a lot of things you do in your life. As the example I used before about looking at those columns that we have or that I use as the example, when you really do sit down to write it out, You've got to examine the pros and the cons, and you've got to look at the the size of the columns to each. But also within that, you might have a small column in the con size, but you also have to look at the impact that it has on the rest of your life as well. Mm. I've met sport dog people before that their commitment is great. They're coming to every training night. They're doing everything that they possibly can, but their family is falling apart. Things are going terribly for them at home. Instead of it being a great love and a great joy, it's escapism. It's, ah, that side of my life is a disaster. I'm running from that. And this is the the narcotic that I need to deal with the pressure of this. So it's not always golden on that side of it. And we can't look at it yeah. like sport dog people are the pinnacle, iconic representation of healthy life. Some of these people are the most mentally unhealthy and physically unhealthy motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. But some of them are the most amazing, disciplined, incredible people that I've also met in my life. We're not saying that there's any one camp that represents what a sport dog person is and any one person that represents what a pet dog person is because there are so many variables, as you pointed out, and it's a good topic. It's a good reason to have this conversation because I know pet dog people who have the most amazing pets. Some of the funnest dogs I've ever met, they've got the most personalities, they love their dogs. They're very involved in their entire family, their entire community. There's no expectation of the dogs. The dogs have a very libertized life where they're allowed to be free. And it's not like you have to be doing this at this stage. You have to be doing this at this stage. You have to wear this. You have to do that. You have to be in this car at this time, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at the attitude of dogs too, some of the dogs that do have that regimented lifestyle understand that that is a very fun life. Like, I've worked out how I can maximize my life and my experiences through all of these discipline and regimented procedures that we're actually going through. 
So you have to look at it at the end of the day and do a fair and reasonable assessment on what is it that you can really see when you trim all the social media fat away from it and people's false smiles and you know, parading around and doing their regimented healing programs with this big Cheshire cat smile on their face. Some of these people, that's theatre. It's just theatre. And some of them are genuine, happy people. Like they've worked it out. This makes me feel good. I like where everything is spearheading because of this. Mm. I've got my little map here of a couple of points I want to make, but a new one that I thought of while you were talking then is Sometimes when we talk about people being flaky, it's easy for them to give up on things. They don't turn up to sessions because it's hot or whatever. I think sometimes that's like Archimedes bath or the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, there might've been a hundred other things like we imagine going, oh, imagine quitting because it's raining outside and you're not going to turn up because it's raining. But there was a million other things that pushed them to the 99% of I'm not going to turn up. And then it started raining and that was just 1%. And we know of this, that's layered stress model. That's all the things where it just goes, okay, that's the final straw. Like that's the reason. And that's the reason I'm going to give. And I'm going to call you and say, I can't turn up because of training. I'm not doing it. But in actual fact, the kids are yelling at me. My mom's sick. I've got bills to pay. I need to do work instead. I can't afford the session. There's all these other things that could be going into them having level of hesitation to turn up to the session or trepidation about turning up to the session. And then there's one final thing where they go, okay. And that's the excuse they give when in fact, that is just the icing on the cake of the reasons. So as I was reflecting on it, because again, I want to say that as I watched Larry's video, I was like, yeah, that's my experience too, right? Like I agree with this. I, I totally agree that it's our pet dog owners that are not turning up to the sessions and the sport dog people who are committed. And then as I got sort of more into thinking and went through all the things that I just explained about the dedication being a, across the full spectrum and the less dedicated people who are pushing the cart being also being across the full spectrum, I then started to think like, why is that an observable fact? Like, why do so many trainers like myself, like Larry, like so many others who agree with him on his post and in the comments and stuff, like, why do we think this? Why do we identify with that so well? And I think what I landed on is this, is that a sport person that we're training with or a dedicated, like a person who is coming to our sessions as a sport person is because they're the dedicated version of the sport person, right? Like they're booking in sessions, they're turning up to training, they're training with us or learning from us, no matter the conditions, they're the ones turning up. And why is it that we observe that it's the pet dog owners who don't turn up is it's because the average pet dog owner who is consuming our content, who's consuming Larry's content, who is into the, the dog space, who knows of us and would book a session with us, but want us to help them in the training is usually because they're the type of person that has the problem that needs solving. And they're not that dedicated because they want the help. I shouldn't say not that dedicated, but they're the kind of person who's like, no, I need the specific advice. I'm, I don't have the time or energy or the inclination to trawl through your hundreds of hours of comments or video or podcasts or whatever to try and decipher this problem myself. This is a problem that I need solved and I need you to help me solve it, right? And so that's why we often, or I think that's why we often think that sometimes our pet dog clients are more flaky or less committed is because the ones who are likely to book a session and then be observably less flake, like flaky and less committed is usually because they're like, I just need this problem solved. That's why I'm spending the money. 
That's why I'm booking in with you because I need this problem solved, right? And then if the problem isn't representing itself, they're not going to turn up because the same way I say to my physio, no, I didn't do the exercise because it wasn't hurting. He goes, yes, but it's going to hurt because you're not doing the exercise. They're like, yeah, mate. And then I'll book another session and then I'll do the exercises, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's the same thing that happens with a lot of our pet dog clients is they're like, this isn't in my face right now. There's a reason why I don't need to be there and I needed your help to do it. And right now I don't need that help. And that's why I appear flaky to you. You, but it's because I'm not as committed to turning up because I don't, it does not a pressing issue for me right now. But I think the reason why the spectrum exists across both areas where we get motivated people and less motivated people, but our observation, our feeling is that the less motivated people are the ones that are in the pet crowd is because they're the ones we interact with, right? But what we don't think about is it gave me cause to look at the numbers. Now you're familiar with it. People have heard me say it. I have issues with numbers. I have like obsessive compulsive disorders problems with numbers, right? And I can, I get weird about chasing numbers and I gamify a lot of things. It's why I had to stop wearing the whoop band because I started gamifying my sleep <laughs> and shit like that. Like I, I have problems with it. But what I realized is you look at, again, use us as an example. In the dog space, you know, maybe I know a thousand people, right? Like around the world, people that I actually whether I know their name or they're a person that I would smile and nod at and be like, oh, hey, how you going? Like, I recognize you, right? Like you're in the community. Maybe that's a thousand people at, at the upper end. But in our discussion group, there's 10,000 people, right? There's 10,000 people that are that are consuming our content. I, the numbers of the podcast, well, I don't know them exactly. There's thousands of people that listen to this show. Mm. but there's So there's way more than I see at events. And I use Larry as an example. And I want to point out, I love Larry. I'm not, I'm just using this as his post as a vehicle. Yeah, we're not bit Larry. Not, not in the slightest. I'm no, just using it as a vehicle Larry. to tell a story. But you look at Larry, Larry's got more than 100,000 followers on YouTube, right? That's 100,000 people who have de who have decided I want to subscribe to this channel because I'm interested in this guy's content. Yep. But there's no way Larry knows the names or can smile and nod and recognize 100,000 people. So what that tells me is in the background, there are so many fucking super dedicated pet dog owners who we have never met, mm. right? And they're the people who are trawling the content. They're the people who are, you know, listening to this podcast just for the odd episode where we do say something insightful about dogs and dog training, right? They're the ones that are, are watching Larry's YouTube videos and watching him train and taking notes. They're the people who are listening to Robert Cabral and, and all the other people who are way bigger than us and have these huge followings in dogs. You know, some people even tipping hundreds of thousands, millions of followers. Their followers, their people are the pet dog owners. The overwhelming majority of them are the fucking dedicated pet dog owners, but mm. we don't have any touch points with them. They subscribe to the content. They're listening to the podcast, but we don't have any interaction with them. They're in the group, just watching. They're not commenting. They're not industry people. They're not people who feel like they have anything to contribute. What they are is people who are super dedicated to their dog and don't necessarily have access in person to that kind of trainer. That's how I've sort of landed on that. I think that that full spectrum of motivation exists only in the sporting community, in the, the training dogs to do stuff community, those people, we have touch points because we go to the same events. We see each other at the things. We communicate with each other in the forums. We buy each other's products. We listen to each other's content. We're doing that kind of stuff. But the people who are super dedicated, even more dedicated to the health, well-being, and happiness of their pet dog 
for which they're looking to either solve a reactivity issue or just better the life of without ever considering that they're going to be measured, right? Like they're never going to turn up to a sport event. They're never going to pit their dog against another. They're never going to pit their training against another. They're not interested in that. They don't want to be a professional trainer. They don't want to be taken or listened to or be considered part of the community. What they want is to do what's right for their dog. Mm. And I think, I feel like, and this took me a long time to sort of land on this as an idea. I think that's the majority of our audience. I think that's the majority of most trainers who have any kind of platform in which they give advice on. I think that that's the majority of our audiences is those super dedicated pet people who are probably in that overlapping sector of the Venn diagram of pet dog owner to sport dog owner. They're the people who are in the middle who are like, no, I'm a pet dog owner, but I want the best for this dog. I'm putting in the work to do this. So they're the people who we never meet. They're the people who are watching our content and they're the ones that like the numbers have to come from somewhere. It's a bit like dark matter, right? Like it has to exist because the universe functions in a way we can't see it. I don't know what it is, but the universe functions in a way that means that it has to be there. It has to exist. And that's what I see when you look at the numbers on any of our platforms. Like uh, I might have a, a reel go viral and get 200,000 views on it, right? Well, I don't know 200,000 fucking people. There are 200,000 people that I'm interacting with, but there's 200,000 people who have watched that and for whatever reason decided to digest that entire piece of content. We get the same with the podcast. There's tens of thousands of people that will listen to this, but I can't reach out and touch them. I don't know who they are, but they exist because the downloads are happening. They're out there. And the only explanation I have is that these are the people who are plugging away. They're putting in the hard work mm. and maybe they can't, they're not in a location where they have access to a trainer that can assist them in what's going on with their dog. Maybe they've been through a couple of local trainers that couldn't help them and they outgrew or whatever, or maybe they're a person that just is super dedicated. This is their hobby. This is the thing that they've decided that they're into, but they haven't yet progressed to the point where they've got the dog that is capable of doing the things that they want to be into, right? They've just got the, the dog that started the journey for them and that they get already hit a ceiling with. Aside from my dark matter example of that, it just has to exist because the numbers indicate that, is that I think I was one of those people. I identify with those people because I was one. I was exactly that. I was a person that got a dog that was fucking super dangerous and was way too much for my level of skill. And I thought I knew more than I did. And then was like, okay, well, fuck, I have to, and, and looked for help. And because I wasn't in the community, I didn't know where to find the right people. Turns out they were pretty close by, but I didn't know that, you know, like I, I had no access to them. And so I'm the one that was diving into the content and just doing the best that I could. And this is long before I was ever a person that considered themselves a dog person. I was just a person that had a dog. Yeah, that's my rant about it. There's a couple of thoughts and feelings that popped up during that time that you were chatting about that as well. And I too agree that this is not a session that we're shit-mouthing Larry because he's a very important person to our community. And it's a good talking point comment. There are a bunch of people that I know that get heavily involved and heavily invested in dogs. And I'm using myself as an example of this, especially myself an example of this, because there were plenty of times where I traded off family events, funerals, birthdays, engagements, weddings, whole bunch of things in order to make an excuse that there was something on with my dog over that weekend. There's other people involved in other parts of the dog community that are doing exactly the same sort of thing. Like every weekend, they're at a dog event. Every evening you're seeing on their social media channel, they're at a dog event. That kind of makes me think is what's missing in their life or what are they trading off to replace 
the people in their community with the dog that the dog community have become their family and their family don't really mean anything to them anymore. To some people, there's no care or, or thought on that. They kind of think, well, I really don't enjoy my family. They're not really nice people to be around. They're not fun people. or They're not the sort of people I want to dedicate my time to. And there's other people who just think, well, I'm so obsessed with this. I'm chasing this carrot and I've got so invested into the weeds of it that I can't see what's in my wake anymore. I've just left that well and truly behind me because it's not as important as winning this trophy. Like that trophy is my focal point right now or getting 10,000 likes or fans on social media because, you know, like I'm addicted to seeing that spiraling up on my social media platforms. I can't explain the the reason why people do what they do because I have enough trouble explaining why I do what I do sometimes. <laughs> you know, like using the example before about getting blown out on that SCOBY thing, like that was really testing my mental clarity at times and even Narelle's patience, which there were times where she was just saying to me, do you think we've got enough kombucha in the house? Like at one stage I was tipping kombucha down the drain. I wasn't even drinking it. It wasn't for <laughs> the kombucha anymore. It was just my desire to do it had blown out so expansively. But I was like that in the early days, especially when Harley was alive. Like Harley superseded everything. I was so invested with everything he did. I became like that helicopter parent that just wanted to make sure that everything in my lifestyle was invested in that dog. Like he became a part of my personality and all the things that were lacking in my life at the time, all the areas that I didn't feel important in or I didn't feel loved enough or important enough came through that dog. I know that now. I didn't know that at the time. I wasn't aware of how insignificant I felt in myself that I needed to transplant that in my own life with my other dog. Now, there might be people out there listening to this and going, I don't feel like that, Glenn. That's not me. I love this and I'm really dedicated to it. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of other reasons. You're not advocating for me. I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to talk about something where I felt incomplete and all of this felt really good. You know, I used the word narcotic before because this was narcotic. It was something that, you know, it was a drug that I just have to keep taking because it made me feel so good. It made me feel important. And I felt that I became important. I felt that I became this unstoppable titan because people started paying attention to me. I got a lot of things that I felt really lacking in. All of the things that I felt were really important while I was ignoring many of the things that were actually important in my life. We've talked about this many times on podcasts and off podcast, where sometimes you're running to things and sometimes you're running away from things. You used the mm. example before, pushing the cart and pulling the cart. It's a very similar, if not the same sort of scenario or example. But yep. sometimes I think people have to identify, is what I'm doing a really healthy thing? Am I doing the right thing for me and for the dog? Or am I doing it to compensate for something else? That's a personal journey for you as well. It doesn't matter whether you're a pet dog person or whether you're a sporting dog person, no scorn, no kicking the balls for anybody on each side of the camp there. It's just like sometimes we just run away from something so hard that we push all our energy and all our time into something where we really feel that this is healthy and this is giving me what I want. But also, once again, to be a bit cyclical with it, again, I kept thinking about Melanie's comments when she asked me, what happens to you at the end where it doesn't work out or it doesn't give you what you want, where does that leave you in a mental clarity space? And I think the first time that everything fell apart for me, that was a reason for it. The first time I ever really had a bit of a breakdown in my life, 
I feel that there were so many collisions that happened in top of my life. What I try and do now is drum up what I feel for myself is a good balance of things. Right now, Randy is old. He's retired. He's just living out a uh, retirement life. I don't think that Randy really enjoys retirement life. I think he would love to destroy himself trying to do working dog stuff. But for him, it's just the worst thing I could do to him. If I want to kill him quickly, that's how I would yeah. do it. Sometimes you've got to step in for the well-being of your dog and understand that his lifestyle is, you know, when he sees Mando going out to do stuff, it really breaks his heart to the point where when I put Mando away, I've got to give Randy a, you know, like get to get a wedge out and do some little drills with him just so he feels like he's participating still and he's not just thrown into the scrap heap. Because that's another bizarre thing that happens too with old dogs is old dogs have really celebrated while they're winning the trophies and then they're scrap heaped mm -hmm. when they're not. And they're just sort of cast into obscurity when they're no longer useful to the person who was obsessed with their life. And yet they forgot that that dog was a very important reason for why they got to where they did. It's because of the partnership with that dog. It's your skill as a handler. It's the skill of the people that helped you along the way. But that dog was a huge element of it. And it shouldn't be forgotten about and it shouldn't just be discarded as like, oh, you served your purpose for me now. I'm just going to wait for you to wither off and die because I've got mm -hmm. this new dog now and it's very important to me. You've still got to remember, as I do for Randy, is I still remember how important he is to me. And he did a great job with his first attempt at PSA and I really appreciated him for that. He's a better dog than I put the time into him. And, you know, if COVID hadn't happened ifs and buts were candies and nuts, you know, the old saying, there's a lot of things that, that could have happened there, but I don't want him to ever just go away and be a pain in my ass. He's not that. He's a pain in the ass. Like he's a, he's always been, he's been a pain in the ass since he's been uh, seven weeks of age, but I love him because of that. We always knew that Randy, he needed to do something. Um, I put a, a clip up of him on Facebook the other day at seven weeks old we took him out to the shed and he saw a skateboard and he was like literally chasing the skateboard, riding it, biting it. He'd never seen one before, but he was so into it. Yeah. And that's how Randy embraced life. You know, he was like that. And you've had many similar experiences with Remy, you know, like we grow up with them. They teach us. They're our mentors in a lot of way. Like there's so many things that, that funnel into our careers through those dogs you're the same with Remy, you know, like you're concentrating on not destroying him on making sure he, he breaks but still making sure he feels fulfilled and that he gets to participate and have a lifestyle in it. You know, you're one of those people, Pat, there's many others out there as well who don't just make their old dogs an inconvenience. Like they're not just a problem to solve anymore. They're very much family to us and they still need to be cared for at that fragile end of their life. And there is contempt for people in the sport dog world that I know that don't do that. Their old dogs are falling apart in some obscure place and there's very little care and welfare for them. But I also know like so many people that don't do that. Like they're wonderful. Yeah, and yeah. I think luckily that's the majority, right? It is like, a majority. majority of yeah, it is the majority. And they're good people. And I know following along with their life or knowing these people personally, that dog still comes to training with them and still gets to totter around on the field. And, you know, like even if the dog has got three legs left and half blind and deaf and so forth, you still see those old dogs getting pulled out of the back of the car and off they go and they're doing their little thing together. And that makes me feel good. You know, I know that the real circle of the evolution of what they're doing in that career has been fulfilled. Mm. Lots of random thoughts and input there. But I guess the one point that I really wanted to come back to is the trading off one for the other. Like, yes, it's fun. And yes, it's great. And I agree with the fact that 
there's a lot that you can get from it. There's a great community that you can build around the working and sporting dog life, even the pet dog life. There's incredible people. Some of the best people I've ever met have been in this industry. And, you know, they've been clients that have transcended into friends, into people that I would say, you know, they're non-blood family. On the flip side of that, some of the worst people I've ever met are in this industry as well. Mm. I often say to you and, and many people that all the shit finds its way to the sewer. And there's usually collection ports of people like that. But the great thing is there's more good people in this community than there is bad people. If you feel that it's getting into an unhealthy obsession with whatever you're doing, analyze it. And like if there are a lot of red flags popping up for it, do something about it. Step outside and reanalyze where you're taking your life. And and once again, to close on that, how important that the time is around that because time runs out and it starts getting quicker at the other end of the scale as well. Mm. Speaking of time, I reckon that's the place to wrap it up. Yep. Well, that's it. Another episode of Canon Paradigm. Mm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to tell a friend in real life. Actually, you know, promote the show to people that you think could hear the message. But you could also give us some money on Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you a giant backlog of information in there as well as some new stuff going forward. You could pay 10 bucks and get access to the monthly live stream where you can ask questions that I try my best to answer. And there's a bunch of other tiers you can get in there and have a look. Another way to support the show is to get yourself some merch. We've got the t-shirts and so forth from Spring. There's links in the show notes. You can get to all of that. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump into the Facebook discussion group. You can group source information in there. There's really good information in there, as well as we keep our finger on the pulse in there to try and make sure that the show goes in the direction that people would like. We try, if you've got questions or topic ideas, that kind of thing, put them into there and tag us. We'll see it and we can hopefully address it on the show. Or if you want to get in contact with us directly, you could choose an email. We are info at the Love you all. Goodbye. <laughs>